A and S. I imagine June Gruber sitting on the beach at Half Moon Bay, listening to the waves and sipping tea. The warmth of her brown ceramic mug fills her hands as the steam blends with the mist of the ocean. The scene fills her with a range of emotions from bittersweet melancholy to nostalgic joy. Her research shows that this is better for the body than toxic positivity's insistence on a singular feeling of happiness. I can't imagine the fear June felt when she was tackled by two grown men on the streets of Sao Paulo. Her fear and shock stand in stark relief to her gratitude as humans step forward to offer what they could to help a stranger and catch the assailants. Even moments like this offer June opportunities to be curious. She studies and looks for the best in humanity, even our darkest parts, and brings to light the complexity of the human brain and all the stories it has to offer. On the ampersand, we call this bringing together of the impossible, the alchemy of anding. Together, we'll hear stories of humans who imagine and create by colliding their interests. Rather than thinking of and as a simple conjunction in that conjunction-junction kind of way, we will hear stories of people who see and as a verb, a way to speak the beautiful when you intentionally let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. As St. Mary Oliver asks, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Oh, I love this question. When I'm mothering, creating, and collaborating, it reminds me to replace a singular idea of what I think I should become with a full sensory verb about experiencing. I'm Erica Randall. And this is Jean Gruber on The Ampersand. A lot of the way we hear about happiness and positivity, especially in more westernized or individualistic contexts, is very self-centered. It's how can I feel better? And in particular, how can I feel these kind of exuberant emotions, joy, excitement, enthusiasm? Although those are certainly important feelings to have in part of the human experience, sometimes we push them too far or experience them in ways that put other feelings to the wayside. And so when I think about that sweet spot of happiness, I think about a few different pieces. One is balancing the kinds of emotions you have so that you balance both the emotions that bring you pleasure, but also you're experiencing those kinds of feelings that really orient you outwards towards other people. So we think of these as other-oriented feelings. This could be love. This could be compassion. Mm. We've even found, and of course I'm teaching right now to students on campus, that a sense of awe and wonder. The science is telling us that gets us out of ourselves, that gets us into the great beyond, and actually makes us really connect with others in the greater world. So I think it's about also experiencing those emotions that engage us with the world world and engage us with other people. I also have found that happiness isn't about just feeling positive. 
And in fact, we've done some work looking at all the diverse kind of menu of feelings you can have as a human being, right? We're built with all kinds of feelings, including sadness and frustration, times embarrassment, right? Melancholy is my favorite. Melancholy, yeah. It's my favorite. And my kid at two years old, mama, my favorite word is melancholy. And I, yeah, I'm like, okay, I'm done parenting. That was, I, I've, I've arrived. But yeah, these, these other feelings that connect us to a sense of ourselves and outward. And the world as it is. So that means if experiencing what we call emotional diversity. There are times when it's completely appropriate to feel angry at social injustice, at the world, you know, not going the way it could or optimally ought to be. And anger can motivate us to sort of push towards social change or, you know, behavioral change. There's times when embarrassment, we find that it actually can be completely all right, although it can feel painful. When you feel embarrassed, other people like you more, they They trust you more, they laugh. Yeah, they see your humility, humanity. So happiness is about experiencing all the different, the palette of emotions we find. What brought you to this work? I, I think for myself... I spend so much time as an artist and as a writer being with, and I, I wonder what it's like to be with on a neurological level, on a scientific level. What brought you to be with happiness so deeply? I mean, part of it's interesting about being a writer. I always wanted to be a writer when I was in high school. I loved English literature. I loved reading about human experience and all of them, you know, whether I was reading, you know, 1984 or Lord of the Flies or, you know, it it was just learning about the human mind. And I knew that I wanted to try to study it more deeply in a way that I could also bring in math and I could also bring in running experiments, like to do all the things to be able to understand happiness. But what got me interested in this in particular, actually, was not a class, but I actually was an undergraduate and I was shadowing a psychiatrist through an inpatient unit in the psychiatry unit. And I was following her around as she went on her rounds from patient to patient. And I remember one patient that we stopped and visited and it was a woman in sort of the acute throes of mania. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And it was probably terrifying. It was terrifying and it was also absorbing because here she was in this very fragile part of her life. And at the same time, she was laughing. She was exuberant. And I wanted to understand what that was about because all I knew at that time from my classes was in the positive psychology movement where we were trying to foster happiness. We were trying to think positive thoughts. And this didn't fit with that. And I I wondered, what could it tell us? Well, I I think about... Peter Pan, and he says, lovelier thoughts, Michael, lovelier thoughts from candy, Christmas, and that's what makes you fly. As part of our upbringing as young folks, and these are the stories that are told to us, my mom always called me her happy camper. And then as I went into art making, my work was not fueled by my happiness. It was fueled by the rain in Seattle and screaming over the freeway. It was fueled by heartache. It was fueled by the gold that poured back into my heart to fill those cracks, but it wasn't fueled by happy camper and lovelier thoughts. And my path was to make, and yours was to question and to ask. 
and to get the data together. And then you're still writing. You're, you're, I mean, when I wrote the, when I read the um, bystander altruism piece, that has so much voice. So you're still writing in ways that compel folks towards your research. Does it feel like writing or does it feel like retelling of experiments? Or do you feel creative in the act as you write? I, I find there's different kinds of writing I get to do. Mm-hmm. There's the writing I get to do when I'm writing up a science experiment. Yeah. But there's this whole other world of writing that I've been enjoying doing more of. So writing, write that op-ed about an experience my friend Sabrina and I had in Brazil one night, a very scary experience. I'm working right now, too, on a, a textbook for Introduction to Psychology, which has been wonderful to like think, how can you teach students about the human mind? And also thinking about writing a book about some of the... The children's book? I want a children's book. I would love to. (laughs) Teaching kids about happiness. Yeah. And the notion, you said a sentence earlier on about what really is. Mm -hmm. What is? How do we be with what is and still find pleasure, wonder, and not just happiness at that edge? Uh, Totally. And, uh, you know, as a mom with two little boys, um, I think all the time about like we have this opportunity we can teach children and teach them these things young. So it becomes part of the foundation of who they are and and what they think about their own feelings. I think about that, especially as a mom of two young boys, where we need to foster greater awareness of feelings and and all of them in a world that hasn't always supported men experiencing all their feelings. Yeah, I think that, that that kid's book would be for everybody. I think it needs to happen. Gotta do it. You gotta do yeah. it. You have to do it. Do you think Inside Out did that, the movie? You know, my undergrad advisor actually was one of the consultants for the movie, Dr. Keltner. My face has a big, yeah. giant smile. Yes. Okay, so talk to me about that, because I want to know that Inside Out is real, because I anthropomorphize everything. I don't, I like, the science you can speak is so beautiful, but I gotta, I gotta read it in metaphor. Yeah. Inside Out. Awesome movie. Okay, good. Awesome okay, I'm allowed to like it. You're, yeah, totally allowed to like it. One of the things that I really loved about it is that it showed us that different emotions have, they're like different characters. They have different roles, but they have to all be there and they have to all work together, even disgust emotions that we really don't think like, why do I have this emotion? What good yeah. does it do for me? But it has it has its role in our lives. And the part I love the most at the very end is when is when happiness and sadness have to work together. And that bittersweet feelings are like, that's the human experience, right? Mm. And that it can't just be happiness all the time leading leading the way. I thought that was beautiful and I loved it. Uh, and that word bittersweet, yeah. it just does it right in that one yeah. word, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, bittersweet. Oh, that could be the title of the book. You know, there's a book called Bittersweet by Susan Cain that just came out, and it's it's wonderful. It's beautiful, too, and it's about how some of our greatest times of sorrow and despair are actually the opportunities for us to become more human. I want to read that book. So good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. So I want to get back to the story about the bystander experience yeah. and what happens. There was a phrase that I read that was really like just I felt it in my human body around um, complacency. What was the there's a, a phrase that you use around when there's more people in the space than just one folks are they're, they're, they're not as eager to act in the moment. Yeah. I wrote it down. I can see it in my brain, but it's blurry. So I'll keep thinking about it. But it was this perfect phrase that that kind of swaddled this idea that we are going to pass something off if we don't have to stand into it. Am I Am I reading it right? Yeah, we talk about it. We call it diffusion of responsibility. Diffusion of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. 
What's so interesting about it is it's one of these things you learn early on and that when we're in a group and something happens, especially someone, you know, maybe they're being robbed on the street, that people, if they don't have to be involved, they just turn an eye and walk away. And that that's what we're told to understand and believe humans are about. And it's all, it always made me sad. It always made me feel sort of cynical about humanity. And I think this experience showed me that that doesn't have to be the case. Like there's hope for humanity, especially in these times when it can feel so challenging. Sometimes it can feel really hard that there's still like like inherent human goodness. Yes, especially when you feel danger in your body. So you were traveling. I was traveling. Um, I was in Sao Paulo with my friend Sabrina. We are teaching a course to students there on creativity and happiness. So like where art and psychology meet. It was it was yes. it was a dream. It was a dream. And one night we were leaving dinner, just her and I, and we were walking up the street and out of just it literally was the blink of an eye. I couldn't have even described having an opportunity to react right away because it happened so fast. Two two men just pushed my friend to the side and pushed me to the ground. And you are not a huge human person. You are, yeah, not necessarily. Or like two, two. It doesn't take two to knock June down. Now maybe emotionally, psychologically, powerfully, it takes a band, but two, two men out of nowhere. Two men out June of nowhere. Down. You know. Middle age, like solid, yeah. solid people. Yeah. They had they had pushed me to the ground, so I was on the ground, and I had been holding my phone. I shouldn't have been holding it out, and as I was just gripped to it, I don't even think in that moment I quite knew what was happening. But yeah, they were sort of both. One was like pushing, pinning me down to the ground, and the other was just like striking me with his arms, and I was just in the moment in, in a blur, like, what is happening? How much worse is this going to get? I, I believed it was going to be a lot worse. And when is this going to end? That's that's all I could think. And my friend Sabrina, who is a very kind, very gentle, not physically aggressive person at all, she was standing back and watching these two men over me. I'm on the ground. And just, just in a moment, I don't think she even thought twice. She went and just like whacked him. She kicked him hard. She does play soccer. So we yeah. think that helped. Yeah. But she whacked him with wow, a foot. Wow, she put herself in. She did. Into the mix. It was really, she put her own safety at risk. Yes. And I asked her about this. Why did you do that? Thank you, but, but why did you do that? And she said, I, what else could I have done? You were, you were in a dire situation and no one else was reacting. No one else was there in that moment. And she said, I honestly didn't think twice. And the man she kicked kind of lost his balance and stumbled back, and then they both just took off. I think they didn't want to mess with my friend or us anymore. (laughs) I don't want to mess with her either. I love it. And then it got you two to come together in this op-ed piece Mm -hmm. and thinking about the different instances where folks show up for one another. Yeah. We were floored what happened after that because we thought that was sort of the end of the situation and we were just Oh, gonna... it felt like a film when I read it. It felt like this incredible slow one-shot. It was it responses of everyone. We we then like were standing there and suddenly a, a man down the street yelled, "They've got him. They've got him." Yeah. And we walked down the street and one of the men was there and suddenly there was a whole barrage of police there. Someone else came up to us asking how we were doing. Another guy drives by on a motorcycle. I'm going to catch the second guy. And Whoa, it was just, just the world's 
sprang into action. It sprang into action. We were sort of in a little bit of shock, but, you know, everyone kept coming up to check with us. Another person called our friend Paolo, who had been um, our host for this workshop, and he asked if he could come get us. Everyone in that moment checked in on how we were doing. They ended up catching both of them, which I don't think ever happened. No, it's never happened in the history of time that they got both. They got both. And then wow. they, they tended to us. We went to the police station, mm. and they took care of us. They checked in on us, and they they took us back to our hotel later that night at 2 in the morning. Yeah, And I bet every single human who was in that situation with you and for you didn't leave feeling happy, but they left feeling something. And that's exactly it. No one felt happy in that moment. That To feel happy in that moment, I would think, would have been toxic positivity, right? Yes. Like, it wouldn't have made sense in that moment. It would have meant someone was really out of touch or insensitive, in fact. No one felt happy, but I think everyone felt connected and a sense of what we talk about is like purposeful. Yes. Yeah. I love that so much. A sense of connected and purposeful. Before you were taking classes and studying the science of, of happiness, what was your purpose? When you were a kitten growing up in Half Moon Bay, what was your purpose? Was it seashell organization? Was it reading? Was it, yeah, how did you start to come into purpose? as a young human. Yeah, so I feel so lucky to grow up in Half Moon Bay. It was a small town at the time, kind of pre-Silicon Valley era, Mm -hmm. on the ocean, and a kind of small farming community. Driven through um, on the way from north to south. Yeah. I, and I was an only child, Mm. um, my mom was told she couldn't have any kids, and then I was a surprise, so. Were you born in June? I was. (laughs) I was, yeah, June, born in June. Um, But, I mean, it's interesting because I think when I was young, I loved the ocean. I loved going to the beach. I loved just spending time listening to the waves. It's always, like, just built in me, hearing the sound of, of the waves. And I think I was always kind of curious about living things, you know, kind of broadly construed. I, For a long time, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. I loved animals. I still do. We've got two dogs and wild animals um, in our yard, bears and all kinds of things that oh come gosh. through. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, where are you? We are at Boulder Canyon. Wow. Near Four Mile. So yeah, we've got bears. We've seen bobcats. We've got all kinds of animal adventures. They've broken into our cars. I mean, wow. So no, no ocean, but a, a menagerie. Yeah, yeah. And we would have more animals if we could, I think. And then I think it, the kind of it caring or being interested about living beings kind of switched, not switched, but like started as I was in kind of a little bit older, got really interested in, in people. And part of that Um, was also kind of inspired by my dad, who not until I was in high school did he start to tell me about his own experiences living with bipolar disorder, that they had been kind of hidden, that my mom had kind of covered it up, right? And I was sort of left in the dark as a child, sort of knowing exactly what he was going through. Did you feel those manic spikes that felt I remember next moments, to this kind of I, toxic? I remember moments of my mom kind of protecting him and protecting me from knowing when he was struggling or not explaining why for a year he was at home all the time and, and unemployed. I didn't understand why. And my dad was a great dad. He was always fun and playful and, you know, really great to be around. But it wasn't until I was 
a teenager that he kind of began telling me kind of storytelling about his experiences, the parts that were inspiring, the parts that were terrifying. And it was through that kind of human storytelling that I I felt like we, wow, this is this is lived experience, There's like so to all the extremes. Yes. And what a gift that yeah. he gave you to share yeah. that. And he still does. He still tells me his stories and I tell him my my stories from what I'm learning and see what he thinks about it, you know, bounce it off of him. But it was through that kind of human storytelling that I got gripped and felt like we've got to keep the human in in all of this at the end of the day, because it's their stories that ultimately inspire us to do what we're trying to do, which is understand people better and help them. Yeah. Oh. Thanks for existing, June. That makes me just really grateful that you're on the planet because there's not so many folks who can hear those stories and then not bounce them back off their own and look for, and not that you maybe didn't, but not look for blame or, oh, the, like the notion of this is this is just another mirror for me, but to really see and, and then get curious about more and others, which is a lot like what you were talking about at the start of our conversation that says when we focus ourselves outward mm-hmm. to others, we actually, that's the sweet spot. Yeah, I think so. And I think we have a lot to learn by like listening to others, right? And not making it about yourself, right? And I find like, you know, my dad's the original storyteller, but I've heard so many stories since then. We bring people into my psychology lab and we essentially have us tell stories, whether it's like, tell me about the time you lived through mania or the kind of depths of depression and what was that like? We also have people even tell us stories about their most memorable emotional events in their lives. And we we transcribe them. We look at their stories. We look at the words they use, how they tell the stories. That's a question I have is when we talk about the, you know, I just think about it in kind of a, the Jungian or Freudian way, the latent, the manifest, the content, the, the words that we use. And this... This comes up for me a lot when I, and I've mentioned it on the, on the podcast before, that when I try to tell a story, I try to tell it new so that I can create a new groove to my understanding. So I'm not just reading the book of my life, yeah. but I'm, I'm, I'm creating it in new ways. Did you ask folks when they came in to tell a story one way and then tell it again another? And, or is it kind of that first hit, what language they use that shows up as a indicator? I mean, that's an awesome question. So in those stories, we ask them their kind of first pass, but we've actually, there's this amazing work looking at how people's stories change over time as they're coping through something really stressful or really traumatic. And you can actually just literally see it in like the tense of verbs they use. Do they become, do they use like more I versus we versus you? Do they tend to have just like literal words that reflect more like what we call insight? And the more they tend to use like these words that reflect insight that become less about I and more about we, over time, you actually see that they're less stressed. If they've had symptoms of depression, those tend to ease up and that you can literally see these changes through the words they're using. Can we do a fast paced therapeutic and just start using we instead of I all the time? Would it do it? If we were to talk about ourselves? We see this in couples, actually, when you get couples to have a conflict conversation and every couple can think of something they can talk about. The more couples are instructed to use we or use we over time and Instead of I versus you, you see them closer together. Mm. They're less distanced. So yes, like the we starts to change. Like we're not alone. And in fact, we're connected with other people, which is just so beautiful, right? And our, our literally words 
a single word can show that, which is so, I just think it's so beautiful. And you go back to thinking about writing and reading and and when I was in high school, wanting to be an English major, it's, it's all about the words and stories, that I think, at the end of the day. I could keep going, but we got to go to the quick and dirty. Do you know what this is? No. Have you listened? Okay. This is a time where I'm going to ask you questions, and you have to answer quick, but you don't have to be dirty. But <laughs> that's my favorite. That's my tagline. It's a quick and dirty. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Okay. An anding approach to toxic positivity, like poetry and rain. Hmm. Happy and sad. Great. Bitter and sweet. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah. Your go-to anding combination to relax. Ooh, so this is an and as well? Yeah, yeah. And it can have and in the word like sand castle building, or it could be... Ooh. No, 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 um, and. No, no, no. Ooh, this is so hard to go quick. Um, to me, it would be like ocean wave listening and drinking tea all but the tea i just really can't do the tea part but i am with you on the tea part i was like oh i want to do yoga and then i would say coffee afterwards but we could do that we could do yoga and tea coffee yeah okay i love it okay a cycle a psychology-based movies research flaw so we say inside out is good but like um mania and uh, da, da, da. That, that like a movie showed us and it's wrong. They just got it wrong. Like when the doctors watch Grey's Anatomy and they're like, no, that is not how you do an appendectomy. What is an anding combo that is just like criminal minds just blew it? Mm. I think of killing Eve and psychopathy. Okay. Talk to me about that. I think um, we think of psychopathy as the dark side of humanity, as like the deepest, most evil way a human being can be. And we think of Ted Bundy. We think of these caricatures of people who go out murdering that are cruel, that are heartless. And it just stigmatizes psychopathy. When we know it's so much more than that, most people who have those kind of traits don't go out killing and murdering people, but they struggle with their feelings. They struggle to feel certain kinds of feelings deeply and sometimes feel disconnected from others because of it. And these these projections of those folks not helping. Not helping, makes us scared. Makes us scared, yeah, okay. Um, if what, if I know, I heard you say that Half Moon Bay has changed, but if I were to go now, what are the ending things I do besides listening to ocean waves and tea? Ooh, um, I would say buying pumpkins and eating burritos. I love that. Okay, do they have pumpkin burritos? Do they have like a squash fest burrito? They have the biggest pumpkin festival in the state of California. Yes, at Moon Bay. It's its claim to fame. That's its claim to fame. Amazing. Okay, a neuroscience idea we should all frantically Google that has and in it. Ooh. um, I would say reward and technology. I'll be right back. I'm Googling them. All right, our final thing, this is something we like to do on the ampersand, is ask folks if they had a blessing, a wish, a send-off to graduates, to a beloved, to an ancestor that began with and. And may you always, and should your path. What's, what's June's? I would say, and may you have your feelings, all of them. That was June Gruber, Associate Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. We'll put more information about June's research in the show notes. 
The Ampersand is a production of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. It is written and produced by me, Erica Randall, and Tim Grassley. If there are people you'd like us to interview on The Ampersand, do please email us at asinfo at colorado.edu. Our theme music was composed and performed by Nelson Walker, and the episodes are recorded at Interplay Recording in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Erica Randall, and this is The Ampersand. Thank you.